Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, Plum Creek Chapel, and really excited about what we're going to be studying this morning. I was reviewing some more of those characteristics of the millennium this week, and really just uh, can't wait, can't wait till the Lord comes back and we uh, first meet Him in the air, and then uh, get to uh, enjoy for seven years the fellowship of the Lord in heaven with things like the marriage of the Lamb and uh, the Bame of Judgment, and then come back with Him and experience all of these things we've been talking about uh, during the millennium. So uh, before we get to our study today, let me mention a couple of uh, quick announcements here. Um, uh, first of all, last Tuesday, we had an interesting topic on our Christian Underground News Network podcast. As you know, every Tuesday, I'm a guest on that uh, show, and we talked about UFOs, the Bible, and you. If you've not listened to that yet, uh, it, uh, it is definitely worth listening to, kind of help you uh, kind of navigate all of this uh, information that's in the news. As you know, uh, almost two weeks ago now, there were open congressional hearings about UFOs for the first time in 50 years, and uh, just a lot of, lot of chatter about that. What's really going on, and how do we relate that to what God's Word has to say? And then uh, this past week, we started a new series on our midweek service, and this is called What is Calvinism and Is It Biblical? And I think it struck a chord because we had a much higher than usual live stream audience uh, last uh, week. Uh, it was actually on Thursday night because of scheduling conflicts, but from now on it'll be on Wednesday nights unless there's something that comes up. But anyway, uh, I think this is a topic that interests people. We've already had a, over a thousand, well over a thousand, twelve hundred downloads of this uh, podcast. And so uh, I think uh, this is going to be a good study for the next uh, several weeks. If you missed the first one, you can always go back and watch the video uh, either at the PlumCreekChapel.org website or go to NotByWorks.org and click on Videos Midweek Service and you'll see it there. And of course you can listen to the podcast audio version uh, as well. So those are some of the uh, ongoing things from uh, this uh, previous week. wanted to mention an upcoming event. Uh, I've been asked to speak at the Elbert County Stands Up group on Sunday, June 26th at 2 p.m. And uh, just learning about this group, but I know several folks have mentioned they're familiar with it, uh, and should be a great event. If you're free that Sunday afternoon after worship here at Plum Creek, head out to Elbert County. The venue is still being determined. It's either going to be at a church in the area or at the fairgrounds. Uh, they have a venue there, but we'll update that as we get closer, but you can go to the notbyworks.org website, click on the banner, or click on events, and you can uh, get to the information that way. So we'll say more about that as we get going. My topic, by the way, at that event is the Great Satanic Reset, what to know and how to prepare. And uh, I didn't put a slide in, but this Tuesday is our monthly appearance on the Stand Up for the Truth radio program with David Fiorazzo. And we're going to be talking about the coming one world system. How close are we? So that's our topic for Tuesday morning. That will be live uh, at uh, 9 o'clock central, so 8 o'clock here in uh, the Denver uh, area. All right, well, with that, let's uh, dive into part 56 of a biblical overview of the end times. And this is our fourth session uh, talking about characteristics of the millennium. So I want to put this in. Uh, perspective. Since I wasn't here last week, it's been a couple of weeks. Let's kind of keep the big picture in mind. Obviously, uh, we're talking here about this uh, section over here in purple. The first part of that is the, called the millennium. 
uh, on the right of your screen, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on this present earth. You know, all of the Old Testament prophets uh, beginning explicitly with uh, uh, David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, where God promised David a future kingdom, uh, have been looking forward to that moment when in fulfillment of prophecy, the long-awaited Messiah would take the throne and rule and reign in perfect peace and justice. So it's been 3,000 years since that promise to David. Uh, if you go back to Abraham's promise in Genesis chapter 12, it's been 4,000 years, and still we haven't seen the fulfillment of that uh, prophecy. But we believe, based on the plain teaching of the Old and New Testaments alike, uh, especially Revelation chapter 20, that indeed Christ will come back at the end of the tribulation and start his 1,000-year uh, reign on the old earth, uh, and then it will continue after the thousand years in perpetuity for all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the topic that we're going to talk about next in this series is what, what does that look like? What, what's the new, what, what are the new heavens and the new earth? And how is that different from uh, what we will see in the millennium? But what we're talking about uh, today is what we have highlighted here in yellow, this messianic kingdom and particularly the millennial uh, phase uh, of that. We've also pointed out many times that in God's plan of the ages, the present church age represents the final age, the final era or dispensation. That's the biblical term. Dispensation uh, is a term in scripture that means economy or stewardship. And this is the final age prior to the establishment of the kingdom. So we're living in an exciting time. And as we've been talking a lot about the signs of the times which Jesus told us to look for certainly point uh, to a, a very soon coming entrance into the end times the last days is a term in scripture that refers to the church age the end times refers to everything that starts with the rapture and then uh, follows with that so very quickly we'll just buzz through each of the characteristics that we've talked about so far number one an increase in territory so we see the nation of Israel expanding uh, to be more in keeping with the promised uh, dimensions of the Holy Land, uh, the promised land as given in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, you see in red there the current modern state of Israel. In blue, the outline represents what it will be like in the millennium. And then we see topographical changes. We see Jerusalem becoming the center of the world's worship. We see also the enlargement of Jerusalem itself. Uh, to make room for the uh, much larger uh, temple as described in Ezekiel. Uh, the name of Jerusalem has changed uh, to, for example, Beulah, meaning married. Uh, Jews will be supernaturally regathered in the land, and the uh, land's desolate condition will be healed. Then we moved on to social characteristics of the millennium, things like universal knowledge of the Lord, natural reproduction. So those people who enter the kingdom in their physical bodies, that is, those who survive the tribulation in their mortal bodies, they get saved during the tribulation. Because remember, at the start of the tribulation, nobody is left except unbelievers. Let's go back to the chart here. When the rapture happens, all believers will meet the Lord in the air. And then over time, those left behind, many of them will be saved. Many of those will be martyred uh, to be, have their bodies resurrected at the second coming. But uh, many will also survive throughout the entire seven-year tribulation. And they will be the ones that start out the kingdom when Christ returns in their physical bodies 
and they repopulate the kingdom uh, through procreation. And so uh, they are the ones to whom Jesus says, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared uh, for you. So there will be natural reproduction uh, in the kingdom, in the millennium. Uh, there'll be fruitful labor, uh, universal language. Uh, by the way, we're going to talk about this idea of the curse of sin and how that affects labor in our uh, worship service today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, and then uh, no war or conflicts. Uh, it'll be a peaceful society. And of course, with Christ reigning, there will be true and unprecedented justice. And then uh, we left off last time by looking at some spiritual characteristics. We talked about universal worship. Everyone will worship the Lord. Everyone will know about him from the least to the greatest. We talked about the rebuilt temple and the return of Shekinah glory and the revival of the sacrificial system. And that's where we left off uh, last time. So we looked at Isaiah 56, uh, where we read, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. So again, nothing mystical or symbolic or unusual about that. It means what it says it means. Uh, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So everything that happened prior to the cross in connection to the nation of Israel with all their feasts and festivals and sacrifices and offerings, uh, which was just a shadow of the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus Christ, will once again return, but in fullness. It'll be more meaningful, more significant. Everybody will know precisely what it means because the ultimate reality of this shadow will be sitting on the throne. Um, it will not be shrouded in some type of uh, confusion or, you know, a lot of uh, uh, Jews, especially by the first century, were just going through the motions. They had no idea, even though they should have, that uh, the sacrificial system pointed ultimately to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, which is going to be our focal passage for our worship service today, we're going to take a break from our study of Acts to celebrate uh, in a more concentrated way, the Lord's Supper uh, today. Um, but the writer of Hebrews talks about very plainly how, the, how Christ is really the ultimate fulfillment of everything that the sacrificial system pointed to, and that for the present age, we no longer need to do that. But that doesn't mean that when the final seven uh, years of Daniel's 70th week commence, that we won't see a return to the sacrificial system. We certainly will. In fact, the Antichrist himself is going to uh, blaspheme God and uh, cause a, a desecration of the temple when he sacrifices in the temple and declares himself to be God. But then that same system will be uh, turned on its head back to a proper perspective with the King of Kings, the Son of God himself, once the millennium starts. And uh, as I have said last week, it will point uh, to a much deeper reality than it ever did prior to uh, the coming of Christ. And then, uh, continuing with our spiritual characteristics of the millennium, we see uh, the restoration of the Sabbath and ritual feasts. And um, uh, let's look at Zechariah chapter uh, 14. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is talking about after the great day of the Lord, as Zechariah refers to there, after the tribulation period, after that seven-year period. Let's go back and uh, put the chart up for reference. So you see there in the middle of the screen, 
that seven-year period with the abomination of desolation occurring at the midpoint. It is variously referred to as the seven-year tribulation or Daniel's 70th week, meaning, the word, remember the word week. In Hebrew is the word Shabuah. It means seven-year period. In some context in the Old Testament, it can refer to a seven-day period, but uh, in the context determines the meaning. And in Daniel chapter 9, he's talking about years. He's talked about 70 years and uh, then he asks the Lord, you know, that, that Jeremiah prophesied Israel would be in captivity. And then he says, now that this 70-year captivity is coming to an end, what comes next? And God then reveals not 70 years, but 70 years times 7, or 490 years in the context. So we call this Daniel's 70th week. Jeremiah referred to it as the time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob or Israel. Um, and then other prophets refer to it as the day of the Lord's wrath, the great day of the Lord's wrath, just the day of the Lord, the overflowing scourge, or a number of designations in the Bible for this seven-year period. Uh, but at the end of it, you see there on the screen, is the battle of Armageddon in connection with the second coming of Christ. And so what uh, Zechariah is talking about in the verse we just uh, looked at is that Everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem in that battle will go up from year to year and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So that we will see the restoration of the Sabbath and ritual feasts. Number six, we will see perfect <coughs> obedience by believers <coughs> under the new covenant. Now, let's pause here <coughs> for a second, and I want to feel free to ask questions or make comments. But a lot of people assume that the church is the fulfillment of the new covenant and that comes from hundreds of years of amillennial teaching especially under the dominance of Roman Catholicism that basically teaches the church replaced Israel God is through with Israel there's no future for Israel all of his promises were either uh, abrogated because Israel didn't keep their end of the bargain that's can't possibly be the case because the promises weren't conditional anyway. They were unconditional, but some people see those promises as conditional. And since Israel rejected the king, they say, well, they, they've lost, lost those promises. They don't get them. Another view, a wrong viewpoint is that they are spiritually or mystically or symbolically fulfilled in the church. But of course, that doesn't work either because the promises are so detailed and so specific, even listing geographic boundaries and uh, a temple and a throne and all kinds of details which taken in their plain normal sense ha have to be fulfilled literally so that doesn't work either but nevertheless even many believers today who believe as we do in the literal future for national Israel and the literal future return bodily of Christ to the earth to take the throne still are somewhat confused <coughs> about the new covenant because of so many centuries of bad teaching and they suggest that we are in the New Covenant today. Uh, in my book, What Lies Ahead, which we have some out on the table in the lobby, or you can get that uh, at notbyworks.org, I have a whole chapter on the New Covenant looking at the key passages in the Old Testament, such as Jeremiah 31, that take it verse by verse and show you that nothing about what we are experiencing today is the fulfillment of the New Covenant. Specifically, Ezekiel's account of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36 says that he will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. 
So it's very simple to see that because believers sin today, this isn't being fulfilled. The Spirit of God is not causing us to obey. The Spirit of God is convicting, leading, guiding, encouraging, all of those things, sealing, assuring, all of that. But He's not forcing us to obey. If the Holy Spirit causes you to walk in His statutes, the Holy Spirit is God. And, and he, he, he isn't, he's immutable. He's not changeable. He's not going to you know, cause Mike to you know, obey this much and me to obey this much and Landry to obey this much. If he's the one that's causing us to obey, we're going to obey. You know, how, how, what kind of a God would it be to say, okay, I'm such a great God, I'm going to cause you to be 75% righteous. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It's a zero-sum game with God. And the prophets are in unison on this, that when the new covenant is in effect, believers will be led entirely by the Spirit. Today, we have a conflict, as Paul describes very clearly in Galatians 5 and many other places, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 7, that this flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, and the two are contrary to one another, so that we do not do the things that we wish. So every day uh, when we are catering to the flesh, we produce fruit of the flesh. When we cater to the Spirit, we produce fruit of the Spirit. Uh, but it's not consistent. Uh, the goal of the Christian life is to live out your identity in Christ, to walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh, to walk by faith and not by sight. And to the extent that we do that, there will be greater or lesser degrees of spiritual maturity and godliness and practical righteousness. But it's not consistent. In, when the new covenant is in force, all believers... Will, will experience perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. Uh, now that may raise some questions in your mind because in the, in the millennium we've got glorified believers like you and I, the church, as well as Old Testament saints like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, and the like, uh, David, Moses. And we also have tribulation saints, those that got saved during the tribulation but were martyred. Now, the ones that survive, they're going to be in their physical bodies. But the tribulation believers that get martyred, they get resurrected at the second coming, and they're also in their glorified bodies. So it's fairly easy for us to conceptualize glorified believers living in perfect obedience because we're no longer sold in this body of sin, as Paul calls it, this body of death, this physical flesh. But what about those believers in their physical bodies who get saved? Uh, well, I believe, and I, I think I've mentioned before an article that I wrote on this uh, called Death in the Millennium, and it touches on all of these issues. If you're interested, just email me and I'll send it to you. Um, but I believe that once the kingdom starts, all believers, either the ones that enter the kingdom as believers in their physical bodies or those who later are born and as they grow, they end up trusting in Christ and getting saved themselves, regardless of when that moment of conversion is, I believe at that moment they're under the new covenant and they will not sin. That's my understanding of Scripture. So any questions or comments about that? Does it make sense? At least what I'm, you may not necessarily agree, uh, but, you know, I encourage you to study it on your own, but am I explaining it correctly? Yeah. So you've talked previously about walking with Christ. You can be saved and still sin while we're in this life. But in the millennium, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Gary said, uh, in this present life, obviously believers can sin, 
Um, and uh, but in the in the millennium, believers won't sin if if my understanding is correct, uh, and I believe it is. Uh, and therefore, when you see someone sinning in the kingdom, you know they're not a believer, and that's absolutely right. Indeed, uh, the the whole you know criminal justice enterprise will have an entirely new paradigm because uh, since Christ is on the throne and He's all knowing. When someone is accused of a crime, we'll just ask the Lord. You know, we won't have juries. There won't be trials by jury anymore. We won't need eyewitnesses. We don't need to make the case. We won't need defense attorneys because there will be no defense. They either guilty or not, and Christ will be the one that uh, determines that. So, yeah, unlike today, you see people sinning today, and of course we often hastily conclude, oh, they must not be a believer. And that's should never do that. Um, when a person is committing sin, they're either a believer or they're not a believer. We don't know. Uh, we have to hear their testimony and ask them to share how they came to know the Lord or how they think they're a Christian, and then we might have a better idea based on the testimony of Scripture. But behavior is never the determining factor of whether one is a believer or not because believers sin. There's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer cannot also commit if he's walking in the flesh. So, But in the kingdom... It'll be a clear indication. Yeah. Jeremiah 31. Yeah. That is going to apply to the Gentiles as well in the morning? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. It's, it's universal because other passages in the New Covenant uh, talk about, um, you know, the universal nature of it too. But let's look at Jeremiah. I don't think I have it on the screen, at least not at this point. But look at Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Since we're talking about the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. So this is obviously in connection with the Babylonian exile. And, uh, you know, Jeremiah uh, talks about, going back to chapter 29, how although things look bleak, for Israel, God has promised them that uh, he uh, has a future for them. Jeremiah 29, 11, for example, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Talking about Israel. Now the covenant of, that Jeremiah is promising here, which was ratified at the cross, but promised here, is, is a covenant with Israel. But remember, through the nation of Israel, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That goes back to Genesis chapter 12. So even though it's a, a unilateral covenant with Israel, an unconditional covenant, in fact, it's with both houses of Israel. Look at verse 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. But the, the uh, beneficiaries of this covenant are the whole world. Just like God told God's covenant with Abraham was with Abraham, but it says, you know, your seed shall be innumerable, and through you all the nations on the earth shall be blessed. Same thing with the Davidic covenant. It's with David, but the beneficiaries and the, uh, the ones who, who ultimately receive the blessing from it are the whole world. But going back to Jeremiah 31, he says in verse 33, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor 
and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So, again, if the new covenant's in force today, how do you reconcile Jeremiah's description of the new covenant with the Great Commission, which tells us explicitly to go and teach everyone? When Jeremiah says when the new covenant's in place, no one will need to teach anyone. Yeah. Well, so at the end of the millennium, there's a revolt. Is that just then uh, unbelievers? Yes. Yes, uh, at the end of the millennium, and let's go ahead and look at that passage. So the question is, at the end of the millennium, there's a revolt, and is that just uh, made up of unbelievers? Absolutely. Um, so um, look at Je uh, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. Revelation 20, verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison... We're going to talk about Satan's imprisonment here in a minute in our study of the millennium, but this is after that. He's released, and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Now, again, Gog is the uh, leader. Magog is the land. This is mentioned also in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and it's a reference to Russia. Um, that much is not disputed, although as with everything theological, there are people who dispute it, but it's pretty clear in Scripture that Magog is Russia. And so th the, there is a battle involving Gog, the leader, and Magog, the land, with Gog and Magog, with Russia, prior to the tribulation. That's the one that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is talking about. Here he's referencing the same geographic components but referring to an entirely different battle. So people often get confused because it's referencing the same components, the, the, the leader in the, of the land of Magog, uh, and it, they compare that to the same verbiage in Ezekiel, but they're completely different. Chronologically, they have to be, because this is after the millennium. That one is before the second coming. But same components. So Satan's release, he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is the sand of the sea. Now let's just pause there for a second. So a thousand years is a quite a long time, right? Think about from today where we were a thousand years earlier. In what would that be, 1022? <laughs> I mean, middle of the dark ages. You know, we had all, you know, Think about all of the advancements technologically and otherwise that have come in the last thousand. So it's a, a thousand years is a long time. And by the way, today, things are changing even more rapidly. I mean, we can go back 20 years ago and we didn't have cell phones and things like that. So a thousand years under the rule and reign of Christ, that's a long time. And so it should not take us by surprise to hear that by that time, there are innumerable unbelievers who have been born and rejected the gospel. And it's hard to imagine how someone in that most idyllic uh, of conditions, when there's no accidental death, no injustices, no tragedies, yet people still will shake their fist at Christ and say, no way. That just shows how desperately wicked the heart of man is. And so 
there will be quite a contingent of unbelievers in their physical bodies by the time a thousand years has gone by. And so Satan is going to harness those people. The great deceiver, remember he was, de he was deceiving the whole world during the tribulation using the Antichrist and the false prophet, and he's still trying to deceive a thousand years later. And then verse 9, Revelation chapter 20, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So get the picture. Here's, here's this massive army uh, whose number is as the sand of the sea, being led by the recently released Satan from the abyss. And they're surrounding Israel, uh, surrounding Jerusalem specifically, uh, hoping, Satan does, for one last opportunity to take over this world and call it his own. And what happens? The end of verse 9. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them all. Just like that. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So yes, totally a believer's and then the very next thing that the book of Revelation explains is the great white throne judgment, which is, comes at the end of uh, the millennium and is the final judgment for all unbelievers who will then go the same place that the devil and the beast and the false prophet are. Yeah. So going back in history and talking about the Antichrist, um, when Antiochus Epiphanes mm -hmm. sacrificed the pig at the temple, was this a, an attempt by Satan maybe to bring about the Antichrist and accelerate the, since he doesn't know the time yeah. frame? I do think, yes. Yeah, so the question is about Antiochus Epiphanes, a couple hundred years before Christ, and was that uh, attempt by Satan to, to bring about the Antichrist? I think it was. I think it was a foreshadowing, biblically, of the, the Antichrist that is to come. It's one of the many reasons we know the Antichrist is going to be uh, Gentile, because Antiochus Epiphanes is Gentile. There are a lot of people who believe he's going to be Jewish, but I think the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that he's going to be uh, Gentile. Uh, and we, we've looked at other characteristics of him throughout this study. And in my new book, The Spirit of the Antichrist, the first few chapters, I give all kinds of characteristics of the Antichrist, and I believe he's going to be uh, Gentile. But yeah, the, the, the Antiochus Epiphanes event and in, in, in Daniel you can see kind of the markers contextually where he's first talking about a historical event uh, or I mean near history and then later talking about the end times um, but I do think it was a, a foretaste of what's to come yeah That's, that's my understanding. So the question is, when someone gets saved in the millennium, which, again, just to reiterate, I know I say this all the time, but it's, I want to keep the categories clear, that would mean someone who has been born in the, and then later on becomes old enough to understand the gospel, and they believe the gospel, so they're saved. The question is, will, they will have no desire to sin. Uh, that's correct. They won't sin. They have yeah, they have free will, but they have the, the perfect new nature. They've been reborn and come full circle back to the obliteration of the old man. See, the old man's not obliterated now. We still have the old man. That's why Paul says, walk in the new man, not the old man. But once the new covenant's in force, you won't have the old man. So they, they, their free will is what allowed them to believe the gospel in the first place. So they absolutely have free will. They just won't have the old nature anymore. 
They've been completely made new. Yeah. Sure. So that's a great analogy. So the comment is um, the the comparison would be to Adam and Eve prior to the fall, who a man was made with created with free will, but he was not crea created a sinner. We became a sinner because of our uh, sin, and then by the believing in the gospel, we are declared righteous, which we already are positionally righteous. We're just not practically righteous unless we're you know walking in the new man. But in the end you know, result in the kingdom, uh, we will experience the fullness of that position and it'll re be reflected 100% in our uh, practical behavior. You know, it's just basically we're already, by the time that happens, we're already in the eternal dwelling place. It's just the first thousand years are on this old earth. Then it transitions into the new heavens and new earth. And certainly we can all understand how we won't sin in eternity, right? There's no sin in heaven. So if you think of it in those terms, millennium is just a taste of heaven on earth because the king is on earth. And then it's giving, you know, one final opportunity. I think we've talked about this before, but it, maybe not. And if we have, it's been a while. But the obvious question then comes up, why the millennium? Why not just go straight to the new heavens and the new earth? Well, I believe, and, and many scholars believe, that the millennium, the whole purpose of it, is to give mankind one final opportunity to believe the gospel. Uh, even though, because uh, right now, mankind, you know, many people, and I get into this in my book, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell, uh, a lot of people are bitter and angry and think God is unfair. They blame God. Why is there so much evil? Why did, you know, 19 first graders or whatever die in Uvalde, Texas? This is, you know, God is so mean and unfair. And they, they don't understand theologically that God's not doing that. God didn't create the earth with evil. God created the earth perfectly, and he created mankind in his image. We messed it up. So if we want to see who's to blame, look in the mirror, not God. But still, you can understand how people that, that just don't connect the dots accurately theologically might shake their fist heavenward. But in the millennium, that excuse is taken away completely because there are no tragedies. No children are going to be shot. No innocent child's going to drown in a swimming pool. There are not going to be any car accidents. There's no inequities. The guilty aren't going to be set free and the innocent be convicted and sent to death row. That's not going to happen. So it takes that excuse away, but it, it will demonstrate that even under those conditions, the heart of man is desperately wicked, and sin uh, ultimately begins internally. And we think of sin as the manifestation, but sin is a matter of the heart. That's why Jesus told the Jews, the Jewish leaders, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, you are proud of yourselves because you've not murdered, but have you hated? So you can't see hate. You can see the manifestation of hate. See, that's the problem with hate crimes. It's basically causing the criminal justice system to be mind readers, right? Uh, so I, I'm not in favor of hate crimes, and none of us should be, because then when I say I think homosexuals are sinning, then that gives the court the freedom to look inside my mind and claim I hate them. Well, I can declare somebody sinful and wrong and an abhorrence to God without hating them. So hate is internal. That's the sin. The manifestation of it is whatever you do with hate. If you hate someone and you kill them, then you've, you've committed a crime and you should be punished for that. Uh, but uh, hate is not something you can f 
you can see, you can see the manifestation of it. Yeah. Yeah, they will. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they, they will commit crimes and they will be, again, held accountable. There will be capital punishment, but it'll be uh, perfectly uh, meted out. So, yeah. Yeah, so the comment is, you know, uh, a lot of people were raised with the understanding that the New Covenant started with the cross. So it all comes down to terminology. So with a covenant in the, in the ancient Near East, and Israel was living in that day and age, so their covenants follow the same pattern. You have the formal establishment of the covenant, then you have the ratification of the covenant, and then you have the inauguration of the covenant, or the actual commencement of it. So the uh, new covenant was promised in Jeremiah 31. He, he didn't say, I'm I am making a covenant with you. He says, the time will come. The days are coming when I will make a covenant with you. And then we know from the New Testament that that covenant was ratified at the cross. That's why Jesus said the very night that he was betrayed, 24 hours roughly before he was actually crucified, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. But that's the ratification of it. So that's not the inauguration of it. So if you think of it in terms of American politics, you know, we have an election, then we have sometime after that the ratification of the vote. In the case of the presidential election, that's usually with the Electoral College in December. So the vote happens in November. The Electoral College, you know, ratifies that. You know, this is in the ideal world. We know it's all funny business these days, but let's just assume the way it was intended to be is ratified in December, but when does the president actually take office? The inauguration is not till January. So you have a period of time between the ratification and the inauguration. So by the time you get to the cross, the entire covenant program of God, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the Palestinian, or land covenant, and the new covenant, have all been now ratified, completely ratified, and stand at the ready to be inaugurated but it won't be inaugurated until Christ comes back. So what we are living in now is a, uh, an, what theologians call an intercalation, meaning a time in between, or a, a, a parenthesis uh, called the church. The church is a mystery never explained or revealed or predicted in the Old Testament. It is something that is revealed by God. So it's entirely a, a, an age unto itself. The church age. It's a, you know, it's like God pressed pause after the uh, Israel rejected the Messiah and after the resurrection. And he says, okay, now I'm going to do a new work. And Paul explains this all beautifully in Ephesians chapter 3 and elsewhere. Um, and this age will continue on. And it's a, it's got a lot of purposes. Remember, we talked about the purposes of the present church age. I think I might have that here. Let me look. Uh, yeah. We talked about the purposes for the church age. God's doing a lot in this present age. But one of them is to basically uh, showcase the exceeding riches of his glory and to get Israel's attention by presenting a, a foretaste of the glory to come. So there are many things in the present church age that sound similar 
to the new covenant promises, such as, I will put my spirit in your hearts. That much is true. But the result of that is different. The result is we now have this spiritual dichotomy of the old man, new man, flesh, spirit, and they two are contrary to one another. Galatians says that exactly in those terms. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and the two are contrary to one another. So we don't do the things that we wish. So the results of it are different. But yeah, Israel can see today what it means to be a believer and to have that intimate access to God, to have our ultimate high priest where we can boldly approach the throne, Hebrews 4. Uh, we have that special relationship. We don't have to go through the, all these other mechanisms. We, 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 there, it's a foretaste. And so that's going to make Israel, you know, if, if the church is doing its job, when Christ comes back the second time, think, wow, okay, this is my opportunity. I want what they have. But it's a little different, and the details are different. It's pretty clear. Uh, no one's going to be needing to teach anyone. We're all going to be obeying the, you know, the, the Spirit and so forth. So um, I know that for many people that might be new, um, but it's important to let Scripture speak where it speaks. And I think in my chapter on all of this, uh, at the beginning of What Lies Ahead, I go through and explain, and we did that here, but it's been over a year ago. We've been doing this for so long. Um, but... You know, I explained the, the Abrahamic covenant, the kingdom covenant of program of God, and how that all relates. But it all comes to fruition in uh, the uh, kingdom. I was just going to see if I happen to have that chart. That would be so wonderful if I did. I do. Uh, so here's that chart. So remember, it starts with the Abrahamic covenant, 2,000 years before Christ. That component has th that covenant has three components land, seed, and blessing. The land is, this is what Israel's boundary is going to be, like we talked about earlier from Genesis 15. The Davidic is that Israel's going to have a king that's a descendant of David who reigns forever and ever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And the new covenant is the spiritual blessings, the perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, and all, you know, all of that. But all of that doesn't come into fulfillment, as you see from the blue arrows, until the kingdom. What we're living in now is the church age, which is a mystery. It's a mystery, something previously unrevealed, but now being revealed. And it has its purposes. It's not like the church was an afterthought or an, oh, by the way, or now what do I do? Let me come up with a plan B. No, God, this was all part of God's plan all along. It just wasn't revealed to us in the Old Testament. But certainly God knows what he's doing. So hopefully that helps uh, conceptualize it. It doesn't take anything away from the church's unique blessing of the Holy Spirit and the gifting of the Holy Spirit and the sealing of the Holy Spirit and the baptizing of the Holy Spirit to make us part of the body of Christ. It's just that the Holy Spirit does not cause us to walk in His statutes. Because if the Holy Spirit caused us to walk in His statutes, we all have the same Holy Spirit. There's only one. We would all be walking in His statutes. So the very fact that any of us are not shows that that's not happening today. It doesn't say... The Holy Spirit will cause you to mostly walk in His statutes. The Holy Spirit will cause you to sometimes walk in His statutes. It says the Holy Spirit will cause you to walk in His statutes. Um, today, the New Testament does not describe the Holy Spirit as causing us to do anything. I mean, now Calvinists think the Holy Spirit causes you to get saved. You don't have any say in the matter. If you're elect, you get in. If you're not, you don't. But that's because they believe regeneration precedes faith. And we'll get into that on our Wednesday night study. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach the Holy Spirit causes us to obey. 
what he does is convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and he leads and guides and prompts so that when we have an opportunity and a choice to be made, we will follow the spirit of our own volition versus following you know, the flesh and the lust of the flesh. Yeah. It goes back to my question on free will. Yeah. Well, so the, the question really then is, is more of a, a philosophical one of when all is said and done and the Bible comes you know, full circle to the full reestablished kingdom in glory and time shall be no more, there's no more you know, night and darkness and all that, which is what I was hoping to get to today, but that's great, we'll, we'll get to it next week. Um, you know, could the whole thing start over? Right? I mean, we still have free will, just like Adam and Eve had free will. But the Bible doesn't suggest or intimate that in any way. It's, it seems like God is doing all of this to once again uh, bring back the pre fall Edenic state in the garden. So we still have free will. But, you know, I used to, as a kid, I used to wonder that all the time is that, okay, so once we all get to heaven and it's all over, could we all, could the angels rebel, another group of angels rebel and come to, us and cause some people to sin again and all that but I think a lot of it has to do with you know the creation sin is a curse on creation on on the physical world right so the curse of sin affects not just physical human beings but plant life animal life the globe the weather the skies everything the whole world is under the curse of sin and when the Bible's redemptive story comes full circle all of that's gone away so that's why you always hear me say when time shall be no more there's no night, there's no day, there's no... So in that sense, we're not like Adam and Eve. We're, we're in our glorified state. We're no longer in a physical state. So, Great question, yeah. Um, wouldn't it also be that people born in, physically born in the millennium also have the benefit of hopefully knowing the uh, accumulated history, whereas Adam and Eve didn't have any history to know about before them about basically you're yes you're getting one final chance and this time you have all the benefit of knowing you know what's gone on before and yeah learn from our mistakes exactly. in other words yeah i i think they people born in the millennium the question is will they have the benefit of human history and looking back on things i think they will uh but sadly many still won't uh rely on that wisdom and instead will reject christ um Yeah, exactly. And yet they'll still, still reject it. Test, yeah. yeah. The heart of man is desperately wicked. Totally agree. Okay, so let's uh, we're out of time for this morning, but let me get back to where we were just mainly so I can remember where I was. Uh, so we were talking about uh, spiritual characteristics, and we left off with uh, perfect obedience by believers. And then next week we'll pick up with the discussion of how Satan is bound and what that looks like during the kingdom, if, during the millennium. If Satan is bound, how can there still be sin? Well, again, Satan is just bound. He's not done away with entirely. Uh, and then we'll get into some other characteristics uh, next week. So awesome. Thanks. So we'll take a break. Those of you live streaming, remember uh, our live stream for the service only includes the message. And so it will start uh, at roughly... 
10.30 Mountain Time, uh, give or take 5 or 10 minutes, depending on the flow of the service. For the rest of you, those of you that are here, we'll take a break and come back here uh, at 10 o'clock for our worship service. <laughs>